If you please turn in your Bibles now to uh, Job chapter 9. This morning we continue our series in the book of Job, and we are in chapter 9. And last time I worked through verses 1 through 13, this morning um, 14 to the end of the chapter will be the text, and I'd like to begin reading at verse 14. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering for you, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Have you ever faced a situation where you came to wonder why you are even involving yourself? For everything you do seems purposeless. It seems like an utter waste of time. For example, perhaps there's a vote being taken on something, but you know the decision has really already been made. Or you go to a person to resolve a conflict, but they brush you off yet again, and so you wonder, why did I even bother? Or you go to court and you hope for justice, but you can also foresee from how the lawyers present the case, how the discussion goes, that really you have no chance. What do you do if you have an issue with God? What do you do when you feel like injustice has taken place? This is a real issue. There are a lot of people in this world who are angry with God. They think that he has mistreated them because of the great troubles that he has sent into their lives. A particularly difficult dilemma many face is trying to understand how God could be loving and just and wise and faithful in all that he he is said to be and then take children in death. Well, this is what happened to Job tenfold. Others can't understand how God could plunge them into poverty like Job also experienced. 
Some can't understand how God could possibly be good and allow them to suffer with chronic health problems like Job also had on top of everything else. There are people who, as Hanko in his commentary put it, they make an idol of their grief. They think that the raw deal that they believe God has given them justifies them refusing to submit to to him and turning away from him. They do not want to sing and pray and worship God, and they stop doing devotions, and they think they have the right to sulk and to criticize and can only envision being happy again if God will submit to them and give them what they want. This is apparently what Job's friends thought Job was doing. They figured he was adding sin to sin. They were convinced that there was some terrible sin or maybe a number of sins that Job had committed that had prompted God to bring these hardships to Job in the first place. And yet now Job just complains and and justifies himself, claiming that he doesn't deserve what is happening. And so it's easy to assume that Job is just a bitter sufferer. But in reality, Job is a confused sufferer. He knows he's right with God. He knows he's living a life of repentance. And he isn't even what I would call a past repentance believer. There are professing believers who, when they talk about repentance, you'll notice it's always something in the past. They remember back to the time of their conversion when they first repented of sin and asked Jesus to save them. And they think that repentance is something that you do once when you're first saved. And after that, it is said that you no longer really have to worry about sin. You no longer have to worry about repentance since everything has been forgiven and forgotten from that point on anyway. And that's really a form of antinomianism, which means against law, literally, Um, It's a form of antinomianism that denies the reality that salvation is really a way of life. It's not just a moment in the past. In reality, what we live as believers is the Christian life. And Job was living a life of repentance where he was regularly confessing his sin and asking for pardon. And you might ask, well, how do we know this? Well, this is made evident by the fact that he is described in Scripture as, and I've brought this up many times, but it's important, he's described in Scripture as blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the description of someone who is walking close to God day by day, moment by moment, and this is just not possible from a regular daily turning from sin and pursuit of holiness. So Job is a man of repentance. And this is why he is confused for what is happening to him doesn't seem to line up with a person who is repenting of sin and walking in fellowship with God. And he longs then to understand, well, what is happening? Ultimately, Job wants to be able to have time with God in court. That's the only thing that he can imagine for himself. He wants to hear God explain how what is happening to him fits with being a covenant child of God, forgiven and justified. Job also knows that taking God to court is problematic for a number of reasons. To go back into our text here in chapter 9, verse 3, for one thing, if God is the defendant, he's not going to answer one time, even if 1,000 charges are brought by one of his creatures. On the other hand, if God is the plaintiff and shows up in court to to explain how he is acting justly against Job. Is Job ever going to defend himself even if God were to take him to court 1,000 times? 
It should be obvious that to defend ourselves in a way that says that God is wrong is a foolish thing to do. And Job knows it. He knows that God is all wise and, and all powerful. He has only to look at creation. He has only to look at creation to see, too, that God's rule over this world is such that evidences of the curse abound. These, these evidences of the curse abound alongside of all of the great and marvelous things that God is doing. Remember how in verses 5 through 7, God can and does at times allow chaos and disorder in his creation. And so there have always been things that are a part of this life that are difficult to accept as compatible with God's love and wisdom and justice. And then there is the question that Job wrestles with of how you can call a God into court who is invisible, verse 11. And not only is God invisible because he's a spirit, but his work in the world is invisible. He operates in the spiritual realm of reality that makes it impossible for us to see him in action. On what basis do you challenge someone in court when there is no concrete evidence, when there's no way to investigate all that, that the, the defendant is doing? And so this leaves Job and us really in a position to do nothing but receive what God has in store for us. We're not in a position to stop what he is doing. We're not even in a position to question why he does what he does. And if God decides that he is going to reveal his anger against his enemies, there is nothing to stop him. That's a summary of what Job has said thus far in verses 1 through 13. The focus, as I presented it, has been on whom God is, if someone were to ever think about taking God to court. But now we come to verses 14 through 24 that I have taken as setting forth how things would go if Job were to take God to court. How would things go? Well, first, Job is convinced that if he is given time in court with God, God would call him to account rather than vice versa. When Job introduces the idea of having his time with God in court, I first imagined Job wanting to summon God to court, and I believe, in fact, that there's, that's what he, is, he initially is talking about, but yet that's not the perspective that Job ends up taking. He asks in verse 14, here's another question that Job raises in, in this chapter. He says, how then can I answer him choosing my words with him? So Job doesn't envision God answering him, but rather him answering God. Job knows that he can't summon God to court, but perhaps God will voluntarily show up in court and be willing to answer some questions. But even this, Job recognizes, is not how things would go. He says in verse 15, Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. So notice, God is the accuser. And Job is answering him. And what Job is describing is true to life. It can happen that the plaintiff in a court presents his case, and before you know it, by means of cross-examination and, and uh, as a result of a counterclaim, the plaintiff himself is being questioned, and, and the, the plaintiff becomes the one in the hot seat. It can also happen that there is compensation even sought against a plaintiff for such things as libel or for having filed a frivol uh, frivolous lawsuit. And this is analogous to how I think Job sees things working out. He may, as he envisions it, summon God to court, but if God shows up, 
Job pictures things turning against him. For God is not going to allow himself to be accused of injustice. Of course, he would have every right to demand proof, but proof that Job is not going to be able to provide. God is going to end up being an accuser against Job. And what will be the accusations? Well, we're not told, but I think we can reasonably guess that the accusations would be something like this. Well, Job, you're wanting me to defend myself against accusations of injustice and bringing trials into your life, but you're sinning to even suggest the possibility of my being guilty of wrongdoing. I am the holy, righteous, perfect, and just creator and ruler of this world. No one has the right to question my ways, and especially no one has the right to cast dispersion on my character. You're wrong to accuse me of sin, and so I accuse you of sin. I also accuse you of jumping to conclusions about things you do not understand. This is the sin of pride. You think you have things figured out. You think that you have me cornered, but you are a rebellious fool to think that you have knowledge like I have. I have a knowledge of things that is far beyond even your capability. So Brightly knows he doesn't really have a chance in challenging God inside or outside of court. He admits in verse 19, if it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? If God were doing something wrong, how would we even stop him long enough to question him? Is there any power in this created world strong enough to control God? Any power in this creation that can be used to pressure or manipulate him in the slightest? Or are we really to think that God would allow himself to be summoned to court under the pretense that he's done something wrong and that he has to defend himself? This is preposterous. Job answers that scenario in verse 20. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. And so Job is convinced that he doesn't deserve what has been happening to him. He's a justified sinner who's walking close with God. He, he, as far as he, he knows, doesn't need discipline. And so in that sense, he knows he is in the right, that he's blameless. But Job also knows that if God were to be summoned and he were to come, Job would be the one who would end up condemned. Job would be the one in the wrong. Well, why? Well, remember, we're talking about how Job is seeing things. And as he sees it, if Job is to declare himself to be not guilty and therefore unjustly being punished by God, he would be making some very clear statements about God. He would be contradicting God, whom Job believes has declared him to be guilty. This is what Job thinks, because he doesn't see any other way around it. For Job to be pleading not guilty, he believes, would be accusing God of injustice. So no wonder Job says, God would prove me perverse. Job knows he would be the one who ends up being condemned. Job says his own mouth would condemn him, because by defending himself, he would by default be assaulting God's character. Only one of them, God or Job, can be right in this case. And of course, anyone who contradicts God, who would accuse God of wrongdoing, is the one who is going to be condemned. I'm reminded of what we find in Romans 9, read earlier as Paul talks about people who question God's sovereignty. They have their questions by which they call God to account. They essentially ask, well, how can God find fault with us if everything is planned by him? essentially the same issue that Job wrestled with concerning God's justice. 
And what does Paul do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He takes these interrogators to task, and he rebukes them by asking his own questions, verses 20 and 21 of Romans 9. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Job has questions in his mind about God's justice, but he's right in realizing that those who question God in an accusatory way are the ones who are going to end up being condemned. That's the first thing that Job realizes about how things would go in court with God. And second, Job is convinced that if he is given time in court with God, God is not going to agree that he's made a mistake or that he's done something wrong in how he has treated Job. Job explains in verse 16 that if God were to show up and answer to Job's summons, it would not be because Job was raising concerns that God felt compelled to answer. Notice verse 16, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Essentially, Job has concluded that any conversation that he might have with God about what is happening in his life, it's not going to be because God has suddenly been convinced by Job to reevaluate what he's doing. Can you imagine, like, Job telling God, it seems like you're being unjust to me, God, and then God replies, well, you know what, I think we need to talk. I think you might have a point. I think I need to rethink what I'm doing. Thanks, Job, for pointing out how I've not been doing things quite right. I mean, that would be a conversation that we might have with a friend, but not with God. God doesn't change. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't look back at things that he has done and regret them. That has never happened, and it never will. And as Job evaluates his situation, he concludes that based on what he is experiencing, God must be angry with him and punishing him. And so if he responds to Job's summons, it's not going to be because he has gotten God to think about how maybe he's done something wrong. Job knows that God's mind is already made up. God is already on a determined course of action from which he's not going to turn. And how does Job know this? Well, he knows it from what God is doing in his life. In verses 17 and 18, Job describes how God has been treating him. And there's no question that what is happening to Job, it's not a mistake. It's not an oversight. There's no question about what God has decided to do against Job. For what is happening to Job is severe. It says, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. He's saying, God's not confused. It's very clear. It's very, very clear that God has decided that he is going to bring hardships into my life. That's Job's perspective. An illustration, maybe your employer fails to pay you on time uh, one particular week and so you wonder why and what's going on and so you schedule a meeting with him to ask about what's going on you don't know it's probably an oversight but if on the other hand you haven't been paid on time for weeks on end your office space is suddenly not ever being cleaned anymore there's no heat or ac the coffee is taken away the bathrooms are in disarray Uh, your boss yells at you regularly, your vacation or sick leave is terminated, I don't think you would have any question where you stand. A meeting to inquire, is there been some kind of a mistake, uh, would be superfluous. It uh, It would be useless. The signs are unmistakable. Your boss has decided to make your life miserable, 
it's clear he no longer wants you as an employee. And so for Job, there's no question that God has decided to afflict him in the same way an evildoer would be punished, at least outwardly. What else is Job to think but that this is what God has decided to do, even though as far as Job is concerned, there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. Another reason Job offers for why he knows God is not going to take the time to consider whether or not he has made a mistake with Job is that what is going on with Job is really just one example of what goes on all the time in God's world. If what is going on with Job is wrong, then God is wrong a lot. Well, of course he isn't. But Job brings up, and you would hope his friends would pay close attention at this point, Um, Job brings up how there are many instances in the world where things happen to people that seem unjust. What's happening to Job is not unique. There's nothing new going on with Job. What Job is getting at there is summarized in verse 22 in the words, it's all one. Well, what's one? What happens to the wicked and the blameless? It's all one. It's all the same. There are not two ways of operation. God destroys both. The innocent meet with calamity as well as the wicked. The wicked seem to be taking over the earth and by implication afflicting the innocent wherever they extend their influence. Job says that even God covers the faces of the judges, which is uh, the Hebrew way of saying that judges are made blind to righteousness and so they don't judge justly. They take bribes, for example. And uh, what ends verse 24 in this particular section is that perturbing question, if it is not he... If it is not God, who then is it? Did you catch how Job lays the responsibility for what is going on in this world at God's feet? It's God who destroys both the blameless and the wicked. It is God who is said to mock at the calamity of the innocent. And that's a translation that calls, I think, for explanation. It says He talks about God mocking the calamity at the, uh, of the innocent. Perhaps these innocent, like Job, think that because they are innocent, they are somehow exempt from trials. And so the idea of God mocking them means he puts them in their place as those who are subject to whatever he decides for them. Or as some have explained, God is, it's not saying here that God finds cruel pleasure in the calamity of the innocent, but this mocking is a figure of speech that indicates to us that God outwardly disregards the plight of the innocent in a way that is no different than how he treats the wicked. I personally think that disaster here is personified, if you know the the concept of personification from poetry. I believe that disaster here is personified as the subject of the mocking, so that it is disaster who mocks at the calamity of the innocent. In other words, disaster laughs at those who think that simply because they are innocent, they can escape him. Nevertheless, God sees, uh, Job sees God as sovereign in all of this. It is God, he adds, who covers the faces of the earth's judges. And while we must never accuse God of sin, we don't accuse God of making men sin, yet he is sovereign over all of the actions of men. And Job is right that God is the one who allows all of these things as part of his plan. If it is not God who is in charge of all that takes place in this world, then who is? That's a question worthy of contemplation, and the only answer that makes sense and that Job considers obvious is that it is God who destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He's talking about in this world. 
So Job realizes that there's something going on much larger than his own situation. I mean, if God is unjust in Job's case, then there's a lot of injustice going on in this world. This would mean God's entire rule of the world of men should be challenged. And Job, I believe, rightly understands the folly of such a notion. He's not prepared to accuse God of of such injustice. And this is because if for the sake of argument, God were to admit a mistake in Job's case, he would be inadvertently admitting to wronging thousands, if not millions, of people throughout history. And while Job would like to understand his situation, he realizes correctly that in questioning God's ways with him, he is opening a rather large can of worms. So what is Job to do? Right? That's the great question. What should he do? Leaves us in verses 25 and following the rest of chapter 9 consider the words of Job as he wrestles with what to do. What, what does he do in, the, in light of the situation that he is in? And we will reach back into a few verses from the earlier parts of the chapter in answering this question. But first, what is the situation he's in if we were to summarize it? Let's have that first clearly before us. Well, he describes his struggle well. He knows he's blameless, which means he knows he's in a right relationship with God. He's not perfect, but he knows he's not a hypocrite. He loves God. He's trying to serve God. He's correct about this as God agrees in chapters 1 and 2. And now he adds in verse 21, I regard not myself. Literally, in the Hebrew, he says, I don't know myself. And I take him to be saying that in light of what's going on in his life, he's saying something like, I must not know myself. Because if I did, I would surely find some sin. I would find something that would account for the hardships that I face. Job figures he lost touch with reality at some point. As far as he knows his own heart, as he knows his thoughts, his affections, his will, as far as he knows, he's blameless. But apparently he's not blameless. He's thinking based on how God is treating me. He's treating me as an enemy. So Job figures, I must just not know myself anymore. And consequently, he loathes his life. Because if you can't make sense of your life, life is hard. And what Job describes in verses 25 and 26 are hard days all running together, one after another, which is what happens when it is the same thing day after day. He he senses his life is passing by, and he knows his days are numbered, and they're fleeing away rapidly, and it's sad, it's discouraging, because he sees no good in them. So what can he do? What are the possible responses as he outlines them? Well, he thinks of three. And uh, one approach that Job could take is, I think an approach I would summarize is just denial. Let's just deny that anything bad's happening. Um, He could just ignore his troubles. He could put on a happy face. He can pretend that nothing is happening to him and just shut off his brain from trying to figure everything out and just decide to smile. That's what we find in verse 27 where he says, If I say, I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. And there are times when this is good advice. This is a good approach to take. I mean, God doesn't call us to live in denial of the trials we face, but there are times of grief, such as when we lose loved ones, and there's a time to move on. There's a time to put the grief behind. There's a time to put on a forced smile as a matter of the will, and that often can put us in a better mood. But Job says, in this case, this is not going to work. Notice as he goes on to say in uh, 
verses 27 through all the way through 29, he says, If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? So the problem is that he is afraid of his suffering. As he thinks of his suffering, fear enters his heart because he is convinced that his suffering is far too serious and significant to just ignore. Because his suffering, he believes, is due to God's wrath. He's convinced that God is not going to hold him innocent. In fact, he's like, I'm going to be condemned. And he's speaking of the future, and he's probably thinking of his coming death. What's going to happen to him at death as well as on Judgment Day? And he's afraid that his present suffering is but a harbinger of worse suffering to come. And so for Job putting on a smiley face, pretending that all is well, it's not, in his mind, wise. It's not a productive choice because he's like, God is against me. This is not a time to ignore this problem and to just try to move on. Things are only going to get worse. Job asks another question there in verse 29b. Why then do I labor in vain? In other words, why do I put forth any effort? And I believe his question connects what he has just with uh, what he has just said and what he goes on to say. He has just said he believes he will be condemned. And then by asking, why then do I labor in vain? He's saying in essence, what good has it done to exercise faith? What good has it done? I've done everything I believe that is required to be justified in the sight of God. I've repented of my sin. I've sought pardon in the coming Messiah. It all seems to have been for nothing. I apparently remain unjustified in the sight of God. This must be my status with God. What else would account for how my life is going? And so he feels like all he has done to avoid condemnation has been in vain. That's not all. In verses 30 and 31, Job points to how he has also been working hard at living a life of holiness in order to please God, and apparently all of that has also been for nothing. The second answer, then, to what he can do in response to all of the trials God has brought into his life is to work harder at being perfect. There seems to be another possibility that he comes up with. Maybe I just need to work harder. The thinking is that perhaps what he's experiencing is discipline. And so if he will just pull things together, the discipline might end. He thought he was doing what was needed for justification, and he thought he was pursuing sanctification, but perhaps he figured, I just need to work harder at fighting sin in my life. But as soon as he says this, he realizes that even this is not going to work. Because he knows that even if he fights sin in his life even more aggressively, God is always going to find some remaining sin to judge. Job understands how thoroughly sin has infiltrated our lives, even as believers. The truth is that as soon as we might imagine ourselves to be innocent or even nearly so, God could so easily lay out all of our sins, lay out the the true nature of our hearts, and just overwhelm us with the sense of our guilt to the degree that, (laughs) that, that we feel so filthy that we can imagine our clothes not even wanting to be worn by us. That's seems to be the imagery here that Job presents, that we're so filthy that even our clothes don't want to be worn. Job is convinced that God is coming against him in discipline then for every single sin he commits. And if that's the way God is going to operate, then trying to live a life of sanctification as a way to avoid discipline seems aimless. Job has lived a blameless and upright life, fearing God, turning away from evil. What has it gotten him? 
That's his perspective. Seems that it's impossible to have a relationship, a friendship, and fellowship with his covenant God. There seems to be no way to experience anything but wrath. And as we come to the end of chapter 9, Job returns to feelings of hopelessness because of this renewed sense that things are not right between him and God. There seems to be a barrier between him and God. There doesn't seem to be a way out of this. That's the main problem, the main thing that perturbs him. I can't get out of this. He would like to believe that as a child of God justified and being sanctified, his life would not be marked by so much of God's displeasure. There seems to be no other conclusion. And so Job's thoughts then turn to the possibility of an arbiter who could work things out between him and God. The problem is, uh, the problem is God's transcendence, his, his, uh, his infinite greatness over Job. God is not a man. He is infinitely above Job in every way. So how could God and Job ever come together? Job knows that God's not going to be obligated to answer him. God is the supreme king and judge over all. Job will, in fact, be obligated to answer God. And what is he going to say? Is he going to claim innocence? The only way to be innocent in God's sight is by faith, and Job has faith. It doesn't seem to be working. Is he going to demand salvation from God? Well, no human being should dare demand anything of God. What Job pictures is somehow there being an arbiter, a judge, who can sort this out between God and him, someone who is equal to or greater than God, and someone who is able and willing to treat Job like an equal. Someone to whom both parties would be willing to submit. Someone who would have power to take away God's, uh, God's rod away from Job. Someone who could protect Job from God's wrath. And with such an arbiter in place, then Job He says he would be comfortable in speaking his mind, but as things stand, he cannot overcome his fear to speak. It's really best that Job not speak, for it would be wrong for him to think that he could take God, uh, talk to God in court um, like he was just another human being. But Job has brought up some interesting ideas and some interesting desires that actually have found fulfillment though not exactly in the way that he envisioned. The arbiter, the judge, or mediator that Job envisioned is someone who, like a judge in court, would have power over both the plaintiff and the defendant. Job rightly realizes that there's never going to be such an arbiter. There's never going to be, can you imagine, a judge over God? God is judge. There's never going to be a creature to whom God is going to submit. There's never going to be an arbitrating judge who is going, in the Hebrew here, um, Job talks about this person who can put one hand on his shoulder and another hand on God's shoulder and bring them like equals into the court. There's never going to be an arbitrating judge who's going to put one hand on God's shoulder and one hand on ours or Job's and bring us as equals into his court. This, this scenario is impossible. There's no mere creature who could fulfill this function. There's no way that God is going to lower himself to submit to man in this way. But yet what God has done is greater than Job envisioned. For God sent Jesus, his own son, to become one of us in order that God himself might bridge the gap between us. God was not willing to submit to man. He's not willing to allow himself to be interrogated and judged by human beings. But God was willing to lower himself to the point of having his own son become one of us. 
and to enter into our life, to take to himself a human body and nature in which he could suffer and die for us. And while there is no judge who can call God to account, God chose to send us a judge, his own son, his incarnate son, who will judge us on the basis of his own saving work. And thankfully, God is merciful and loving and gracious, for Christ's obedience, his atoning death on the cross, are the basis, now for us as believers, the basis for how we will be judged. And so it is God himself, God himself, through the saving work of his own son, who takes away his rod of wrath and punishment from sinners. He eliminates himself the dread of meeting with him. God doesn't need pressure from some third party to do what he has promised to do. He has voluntarily done what is necessary to satisfy his own justice and to draw sinners into his fellowship. And so while Job feels like God doesn't love him and he he can't see a way to question God um, in a way consistent with the gospel, but the reality is all is well. Reality is all is well. Job should just stick with his words that we find there in the second part of verse 15, where he says, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. That's that's what he should have stuck with. I must appeal for mercy. That's all I can do. We can't make God turn away his wrath. There's no human mediator who can make God do what we want him to do. All we can do is to appeal for mercy and leave God to do what he wants. Living in the New Testament era, having a greater understanding of the gospel than Job did, you can rest in the reality that God does want to spare us from his wrath. He has done it in his son. The proof is that he sent his only begotten son to the cruel death of the cross. And he has promised that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven... We acknowledge that there are things in our lives that we do not always understand. We thank you that you have enabled us to have greater understanding than Job did, and yet we can see the things that he wrestled with, and we can see, Lord, that his desire to understand how suffering works with your love and your justice. And Father, we we thank you that, in fact, there is an arbiter, a judge, that you have provided yourself. Uh, You yourself have done what is necessary to draw us into your fellowship and to take care of the wrath that our sins deserve. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, your son. We thank you that there is an answer uh, to the the question of whether we are under your wrath. And uh, Father, even though Job did not understand how suffering fit with that, Lord, we thank you that there is. We know the reality that suffering is not always punishment. Suffering is not always discipline. Um, Lord, we thank you that there are other positive purposes that you have in your plan for it. But Lord, may we never question you in an accusatory way. Lord, spare us from uh, ever imagining that you're uh, like us, equal with us. Lord, may we always hold to the understanding that you are transcendent, that you are above us, that uh, we are not in a position to question you and, and to interrogate you. But, Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, that's what we rest on, your mercy to us in Christ. And we thank you that you have spoken to us this morning 
of the reality that there is hope uh, for us as sinners and uh, that our suffering uh, is, is not uh, the determination of our relationship with you. Lord, uh, may we take these things to heart and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.